the injustice of things is really what drives me. That's what I want to see change. Our world doesn't operate any longer in terms of a traditional just status quo. It's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. And so we need to also be evolving alongside um, our world. Welcome to Cross Pollination. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This week, we hear from Jessica Ketwer-Green, a social policy expert who's created a framework called Elate to help employers work more productively, equitably, and respectfully with employees, especially in this case, younger racialized women, and to retain them in the workplace. This show is about innovation and creativity, about drawing effectively on people's skills, talents, and knowledge, and about doing business differently. So this topic is right up our alley. It's closely related to ways to work differently, too. Something the pandemic has got a lot of people thinking about. How we did things before versus how they can or should be different now. On this show, we're lucky enough to talk to a lot of different guests. And we know Jessica Ketwell-Green is someone you'll hear a lot more about in the future. She's an award-winning consultant, an intersectional gender equity advocate, who also works with the Canadian Women's Chamber of Commerce as Director of Advocacy and Public Policy on creating changes in systems and policies that affect the way that things work. The injustice of things is really what drives me um, to, to this work. And so that's what I want to see change. I'm a, I, I like to think I'm a very fair person fair person but then the other thing that i think about is that like you said it just doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense that we train our girls to behave one way we train our boys to behave another way um and that we only see boys and girls and that this is how the world is going to be where we're seeing as we as we get more and more women into the workforce and because we've trained we've only ever trained our our women to be caregivers we're seeing a disproportionate rate in women uptaking more unpaid care labor than we have men despite both men and women now occupying the labor market um on a in a a fairly equal sense and that's because we haven't yet trained our boys or trained our men to uptake unpaid care work um and so to me that's a perfect perfect example of why it doesn't make sense it just doesn't make sense the way that the way that things are and it no longer makes sense to justify why we do things because that's just how we've always done it. Our world doesn't operate any longer in terms of a traditional just status quo. It's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. And so we need to also be evolving alongside um, our world. So, motivated by injustice, loath to accept easy answers like it's the way it's always been, Jessica embraces change. How did she get started on that road? In the eighth grade, we talked, had conversations about why magazine covers were overly edited and that it's talking about beauty standards and I, ideals of beauty and so forth and why that's harmful. It would anger me. I would get angry. That would be my response. Then when I sort of moved out into university, sort of comparatively, again, you're seeing that same that same stream or you're seeing that same sort of subject matter but in a university context we were talking about gender roles and we were talking about uh the sociology of gender and how those things impact and socialization and so forth and so it was of course a more deep and contextual conversation than what we were talking about in the eighth grade but 
definitely there's a there's a significant theme across that and so again that same my reaction was the same from the eighth grade in, in which i was angry that was my natural inc- inclination how, how you know how can the world be like this this doesn't make sense to me and so instead of sort of becoming complacent my reaction is to then turn my anger into into action um and see and want to see things be be different um and that's definitely where <laughs> what continues to motivate me or put the kind of the fire beneath my feet post graduation i was always been very clear on sort of the roles that i've taken up in in a professional sense in that i never wanted to go into a job just because it was a job for me it was always very clear the bottom line was that it was work that was meaningful and it was work that contributed to systems change i've been in a couple different organizations and now i'm here working at the chamber of commerce which is so exciting and working as a consultant which is even more exciting um and really looking at again creating systems change So old school gender roles that relate to inequalities in society, like pay gaps and unpaid caregiving, motivated Jessica to go into areas of work where she could address those inequalities through work on policy and getting those policies to catch up to how a lot of people are living in their real lives today. It also connects to her ideas for workplaces that we'll hear more about in just a few moments. And I have to say that, like, policy takes so long because people are so hesitant. Um, And it truly has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that if you change a policy, if you change a strategy, an initiative, uh, a law, a process, a practice, that means that you're actually changing the way in which people operate, which is a lot harder for people to do than it is to just say, oh, yeah, this is important. That social issue, that's important. That's easy for somebody to say. Um, But what is hard is for people to then act and change. Um, and embody the things that they're saying. Now that that's re- that's requiring a lot more from someone than just asking someone to support something in support a theory than it is to embody or embrace that theory. Moving to workplace policies in particular, when Jessica herself started in the workplace, she was looking forward to the opportunity to put her skills, talents, knowledge, and education to good use in the social or nonprofit non-governmental sector. What she found and what she heard from other young racialized women was part of what led her to develop the elate framework that we'll hear more about shortly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely came in with my blinders on. Um, thinking, oh, this doesn't exist. Like, I'm a very optimistic person. And so, you know, of course, you read about these types of discrimination uh, or this type of discrimination, rather. And you study it, you understand it, the theory behind it, the different things that contribute to it. But because I work in the nonprofit sector, I'm like, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't exist. And, you know, wanting to be a little bit more optimistic and arguably naive about it um i definitely when i first started working didn't recognize patterns of these types of behaviors because they were so micro they weren't necessarily blaring examples of this type of discrimination which is it's hard for people to understand even myself you know i've studied this work and i've been in this work for almost 10 years now and it's hard to hard to 
identify, but as time goes on, and I think as well as when you start to climb the ladder, corporate ladder, if you will, um, people will start to, you'll start to see the examples of discrimination more blatantly and more openly. And the other thing is, um, unfortunately, is that you'll start to study see, document, and experience discrimination in the workplace even within the last year or two. Um, And I tell people all the time that, you know, one story is a one-off. But when you have hundreds, thousands of stories that talk about the same type of problem that speaks to the same issue across different workplaces, different sectors. It's no longer a one-off story and just, you know, this experience of this woman or that person. What it is is a compelling example of the systemic problems that exist. And I always tell, you know, there's a sort of a rule within research. If you can find three sources that say the same thing, then you have something that's valid. And I think that that's exactly what in my years of working experience have seen that I can't dismiss these, my own experiences, or I can't dismiss what's happening. Um, It's just one-offs and that it's a symptom of a larger issue. And three cases is is enough for me to say there's a correlation here. There's a pattern here. There's a problem. Before we jump to proposed solutions, what specifically are some of the problems that Jessica Ketra-Green and other racialized young women, women who aren't or aren't assumed to be white, encounter pretty commonly in a lot of Canadian workplaces? So there's an interesting cycle um, that, that happens where, you know, you have, and bless their hearts, they mean well, people from HR who, I feel like HR always get the, get the bad rap, but People in HR who have really good intentions um, and want to bring on diverse groups of people, but they don't necessarily know how to retain diverse groups of people. And that's 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 another disconnect. But you'll, you'll put out a call, you'll hire someone who, who's diverse and great. Everyone's excited. You have the new hire who's excited. You have the HR team who's excited. Um, and so it's a, it's a fun time. But as time progresses, like I said, when you come into the workplace, you're, all, you're also coming in with your own bias. Um, and whether, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it's there. And what happens, particularly for a lot of racialized women, is that we get spoken over. We get undermined. Our ideas are stolen. We uh, experience overt um, discrimination, microaggressions, racism, sexism, you name it. <laughs> I can throw out all the words, all the acronyms, but essentially what it boils down to is um, we, get, we get treated differently from other groups of people in the workplace because of said unconscious or conscious bias. Now. The other component of that that I wanted to touch on was that even when we do come forward and report things, there have been so many cases in which racialized women are seen as the aggressor or we've been made to 
uh, apologize to other people uh, because they were upset by our comments that were made when really and truly we're the victims in the situation. And so um, we have this cycle then where then we're, we're seen as the, as the negative in the situation. And when other things come up uh, again and again, we were being painted or branded um, as sort of the, the bad apple, if you will. When really, if you look at the facts, we, it, it wouldn't, a logical person wouldn't see it um, as us, per se. And I say us because I'm also a racialized woman. <laughs> I know no one can see me, but um, I identify as being part of this group, of course. And so what that does is that that pushes us out of the workplace. Who wants to be in a workplace where you're constantly being berated or seen as the aggressor or the negative or the negative, you know, contributor to the team or you're seen as um, problematic or and so forth, right? And so when we think about promotions, who are they going to pick? When we think about raises, what are they going to say? When it, when it comes to uh, evaluations, are they going to, of course, they're going to talk about our poor behavior and so forth. And so what I think here is that once that once that all starts happening, and this could take weeks, it could take months, it could take years. For every every person, they have a different threshold on how much they're willing to um, tolerate in a workplace for a paycheck before they feel like they need to move on. And, and so that's when you have racialized women who then feel like they need to leave the workplace. Um, and then the cycle starts again. Then HR is like, oh, we'll just hire somebody else, you know, have a new diversity hire. And don't even get me started with what's wrong with diversity hires. But, you know, they'll hire someone who's diverse and they'll feel good about it. And then the whole cycle kind of restarts itself over and over again because we're not nipping in the butt the problems with inclusion and retaining racialized staff. And we see it. We we approach HR policies, practices on onboarding and retention through a colorblind lens. Um, and that's definitely what we should not should not be doing um, if we do want to retain women of color in the workplace. Of course, some listeners might note that many employees, regardless of race or gender, might encounter instances of disrespect, ideas being dismissed, passed over, or having someone else take credit for their work. And the concept of whistleblowers being blamed for bringing problems to light in organizations is pretty well known. The difference here is that racialized women often encounter these kinds of issues more frequently and consistently, and specifically because they are racialized women, not for other reasons. That has a lot to do with very common biases related to race and gender, and attaching those biases to racialized women in the workplace, with perceptions of being less credible, less competent, knowledgeable, as less authoritative or less deserving of those kinds of roles, for example. In a more nuanced way, these incidents can play out differently for racialized women of different backgrounds, too, depending on the biases or stereotypes that attach to those different backgrounds and how other people might perceive them. How discrimination plays out can vary, too, with different industries, different workplaces and working cultures, and differently in different parts of the country. The question is, here we are in the 21st century. How do these kinds of individual and systemic issues happen in workplaces, and why? I think as much as we'd like to believe that when we enter the workplace, we're a different person and, you know, all the qualms or all the social issues that are wrong with society, 
get dropped at the door and we come in and we do our job. But the truth is, it's who you are as a person, your beliefs um, come in with you as well as all of society's problems. Like it's easier to convince ourselves that uh, workplaces aren't sort of micro versions of the larger contextual or societal or systemic issues that occur. Uh, but I would say that they are, and it's a, you have a small group of people who experience all the, all the wrongs in society you know, in, in one little neat place. And then you all get a paycheck, you know, every other Friday or something like that. Now, um, the thing that we're seeing for the first time in a very long time or ever really, I believe, but there is the largest, the widest gap of workers in the workplace right now. So you have people who are in their 70s and in some workplaces I've seen people in their 80s uh, who who are working. Then you have younger people. Now we're starting to see Gen Z uh, in, in the workplace as well. And so you have this wide spectrum of baby boomers and Gen Z who come from completely different experiences of the world all together in this one workplace. Now, there are many other generations as well in between baby boomers and Gen Z. And I bring this up is because you have millennials and Gen Z who get this, who, who have this reputation of being social activists. Um, and so what they're demanding in our workplaces now are more inclusion, having a workplaces or businesses uh, uptake social values and contributing positively to the world. And, I think it's very important because millennials and Gen Zs are usually occupying sort of more entry level, a little um, some managerial role, kind of depending where you're at in the um, millennial spectrum. You know, if you're an older millennial, let's say you may be a manager, but more likely than not, you have a lot of senior leaders who are occupying uh, CEOs, executive director positions who are baby boomers or Gen X. And so they don't necessarily or haven't necessarily um, operated in a workspace or in a workplace that embodies those values as much as Gen Z or Gen X has. And so it's a lot for them to wrap their minds around. Fair enough. You know, you have, what, 30 years of operating in a you know, strictly business fashion. And then you have all these youngsters who come in and say, we need to just rip this off, you know, rip, rip the tree from the roots and, and, and buy all these values. And so workplaces have been, we're seeing um, workplaces try to move towards uh, a more inclusive and socially aware culture and operations. Um, but I think for a lot of uh, millennials and a lot, definitely a lot of Gen Zs, uh, it's not moving fast enough. Um, and I, and in my own work, I kind of prescribe this to the fact that a lot of workplaces are are focused their efforts on diversity. And diversity, I see as a fact. Diversity is a quantifiable, uh, uh, quantitative fact. You can have, you know, three black people, two white people, two Hispanics, two South Asians, one East Asian, 50 percent women. Like 
great stats. But what is really the difference? I think that what a lot of millennials and Gen Zs are looking for is the inclusion, which is different from diversity. So we have diversity, which is our fact. It's quantitative data, but inclusion is that qualitative data and how people feel and how people are treated and what do our policies and our practices say? How do we engage with people who are different from us in the workplace? And that really boils down to inclusion. And that is so much harder to address because, like I said, when people come into the workplace, they're not only coming with, they're, they're not an empty robot um, that comes in and embodies all the workplace values within them. And then when they leave, they become a, a different person. When you come into the workplace, you also come with your experiences, you come with your perceptions, you come with everything from the outside world into the workplace. And we, we can see that um, very clearly uh, when when you have instances or workplaces that got that get called out or, you know, you have a public media scandal, if you will, um, on these types of issues. And they're happening more frequently within the last, I think, two, two, three years where workplaces are being called out for their lack of inclusion um, and their, their lack of uh, support for those who sort of fit traditionally marginalized groups or categories. This episode is brought to you by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. You can hear about enhancing your cybersecurity, laying the legal foundation of starting a business, the three R's of the hemp revolution, and more. Find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. Jessica Ketwer-Green herself is now a consultant in the area of social policy and more. And as many former employees have discovered, that gives her more control over her working environment. She also advises companies on issues of inclusion as well as equity and diversity and why that's important, not just for their employees and how to retain them and hire them, but for the companies and organizations and themselves to manage risks, the risks of doing that poorly or not at all. She also came up with the ELATE framework, which she explains here. ELATE stands for Engage, Listen, Act, and Thanks. I think that's the thing about inclusion work is that it's so simple. And a lot of times it feels, especially for people who don't engage in this work on the day-to-day, it feels massive. It feels untouchable. It feels like we can't ever get there Um but a lot of the strategies that I that I've provided for workplaces um, and supports and interventions that I've given have been very simple. Um, I always tell people it's not rocket science. It's just the way in which we change the way we look at things, the way we analyze things, the way we behave, which is hard, but it's not like you need to go off and get a degree in it to, <laughs> to, to, to implement it. So with all that saying, the framework is elite, very simple. E is for engage. So how we engage black and racialized young women uh, in decision-making and the decision-making um, 
component of engagement is so important because we need to hear from a wide variety of voices. And going back to what I think we spoke about earlier and that widespread of people in the workplace, we need to hear from everybody. What's going on? How, how do you see or how do you, what's your position on this decision that we're making? Do we bring in X, Y, Z? Do we think that it's important to go after this client? Um, and so having young women, and I said, like I said, uh, black and racialized women be engaged in decision-making is important because they bring a special perspective, uh, to decisions. And I say engage because I want us to move away from tokenism, which is a really big part of the problem with diversity that we were speaking to as well, where we don't bring somebody in to say, oh, yeah, we're not racist. Look, we have this one black guy who works here. No, it's about engagement. It's about instead of tokenizing this person, having their thoughts, opinions, perspectives heard in engagement processes. Which leads me to the, the other point, which is listen. So now that when you engage people in these conversations, are you actually listening? Are you actively listening? Because another reason why a lot of young racialized women leave the workplace is because they're actually not listened to. So they're consulted. What do you think about this program or this new initiative or campaign or idea or client? But then they're not listen to and it really it really blows my mind that you hear a lot of young racialized women saying oh you know they asked for my opinion but then they didn't actually listen to what I have to say um and that's I think a part of human nature in wanting to be if someone's wanting to hear your opinion to then be listened to um and so that's the, the second part the third part is then to act. So, of course, you know, you're not going to act on every single thing or part or idea that somebody brings forward. But are you acting on anything that, that this group is bringing forward um, or that any traditionally marginalized group is bringing forward? Or, or are we only listening to those voices who we traditionally listen to? And are we only listening to those who we, we often engage? We need to back up our engagement and our listening with actions with behaviors with with real change um and i think this is the hardest the hardest part um because it requires people to do things differently and it also sometimes may require you uh and i'm i'm thinking an example of you have you know an entry-level staff a senior manager and an executive director or a ceo and sometimes that requires senior managers to support the ideas the contributions of entry level or or lateral staff to senior leadership and pushing sometimes pushing up against senior leadership and and that's a hard thing hard thing to do um, especially when I think in the context of COVID which is something I didn't want to talk about but um, the, in the context of COVID where job security is really uncertain um, people are are afraid are more afraid or hesitant to push back against push back against the status quo or push push back against their, their managers because they don't want to say the wrong thing that will, you know, have them seeing the door. Um, and so I think that's a, an important thing to mention. And then the last thing, which I think um, go, takes us such a far away 
but it's to thank people. Um, you know, my grandmother, bless her heart, always says, uh, your skills will get you through the door, but your mannerisms or your manners will, will keep you there. And people remember those things. Um, and people really feel connected um, and and supported when when a simple thank you is given. And so when we when we encourage the ideas of racialized people to be heard, when we listen to them, when we act on their ideas, we also have to thank them for bringing forth those ideas. Um, and this is a really big, a big part of emotional intelligence um, and understanding how we can support people in the workplace through that intelligence. Are we talking to our own emotional intelligence so we can understand how we can better support people, uh, reading their emotions, um, and seeing what they need when they need them? Um, and I have to say, acts of thankfulness or gratitude or gratefulness will take, like I said, take people a very long way. Um, but it also helps to motivate intrinsically our employees or our staff or people we work with. Jessica isn't talking about anything unreasonable here. She's talking about engaging with racialized women employees in ways where workplaces are as receptive to their presence and contributions and the value they can contribute as they are to those of all sorts of other employees, and engaging with them to do the jobs they were hired to do effectively. Much of this applies similarly to interacting with employees in general, in ways that promote trust and engagement at work, as well as to employees who are marginalized in other ways. Here's what Jessica tells companies about why inclusion, not just diversity, is important to their companies. And, as is so often the case, it's a combination of the business case, and on this podcast we talk a lot about the value of innovation and creativity specifically, and a moral case for doing what's right in working to level the playing field. I can't tell you the amount of business cases, hundreds, probably thousands, that support the idea that inclusion the type of inclusion that we're talking about strengthens workplaces. It saves money. It grows. It increases pro profits. And so when, when we think about those things, it almost, like I said, doesn't make sense that we're not doing them. I definitely think that every single industry needs it. Um, whether you're talking about private, public, or the nonprofit sector, every single sector sort of why sector um, needs it. Uh, you definitely had more of an uptick from the public and nonprofit sector to do and engage with this work from more of an ethical perspective, seeing and seeing the value. And that's probably more so based on the fact that both those sectors are steeped in this type of work and are there to support moral, moral and public good. Whereas I think the private sector has taken up this work because it's the sexy thing to do right now. And a lot of people and clients and customers are expecting or demanding it from their businesses and, you know, dollars speak. The other thing um, is that it's a part of a risk management strategy. Um, and this is also how I, you know, speak to some of my own clients who work in the private private world that it's risky to not be doing to not be doing this type of work these days and that you're gonna end up in a public relations nightmare if you don't and then the other thing is that they're seeing the benefits sort of uh 
financially of, of doing this work. And I have to say that there are businesses that exist that are doing this work because it's the right thing to do. And it makes sense. But those businesses exist and I will always support them. You have workplaces that are more ma- traditionally masculine um, or have more men who occupy those types of roles. I'm thinking construction. I'm thinking civil, civil engineering, STEM workplaces. And so... They've been less so more inclined to do this work. Um, I will have to say, though, in in regards to STEM, there, of course, has been a huge movement to include uh, more women in STEM. But, you know, it hasn't really, I think, reached the level of pervasiveness where we're seeing uh, an influx of women suddenly becoming engineers uh, or medical doctors or mathematicians or so forth. And so... While there is a movement, I would say it hasn't necessarily really steeped itself into every aspect of the STEM sector. Um, there also have been, um, you know, movements to include more women in skills in skilled trades and and so forth. But what we don't see is sort of the culture shift uh, towards inclusion within those sectors. We're, we're seeing, yes, there have been an increase in women. We've seen more women who have entered the sector, but what we don't see is the change in culture within the sectors that address the discrimination um, and that address the inequities that exist. I can certainly verify from my own observations and experience that what Jessica has talked about is absolutely true. And I've personally seen and heard from lots of other racialized and non-racialized women of all kinds of incidents that I might have found truly unbelievable earlier in my own career, and that still occur quite commonly in a lot of places in the workplaces in the 21st century. But there's also lots that organizations can do, as she's mentioned. First, though, they do need to understand and believe that there's a problem, and that historically in Canada has been a huge barrier. It's just not something we've been willing or easily able to accept about our country for a long time, issues of gender or racial discrimination. Data, metrics, and statistics around who and what groups get hired and how they're retained is also a challenge. And in a lot of organizations, that's not necessarily always captured. Companies most often act on what they measure. And regardless of whether numerous and highly common anecdotes verify that there's a problem, if there aren't, if there isn't data to back that up and to evaluate how well solutions are working, it becomes much harder to address those problems. Jessica wraps up with a last word for organizations looking at how to engage positively with diversity and inclusion and a message for young racialized women going into the workforce and some of which she wishes she had known at the start of her career. You're not born out of the womb knowing all these things. And we have all operated in a system in which encourages discriminatory behavior. And I think that's the thing that we miss in that. We can't escape from it. Whether or not I like it, we, this is the way that the world currently is. I mean, I'm, I'm out here trying to make a change, trying to make a change, but this is the way that the world currently is. And so we have to recognize that even though people may come from diverse backgrounds or represent a diverse community, that doesn't necessarily mean that they embody the ideologies uh, that exist for each of these groups. And so I think this is especially important when we talk about anti-Black racism in the workplace. Um, 
you have a lot of black people who are hired into the workplace and the workplace is like, oh, you know, they're going to bring up uh, more, more of a perspective, help us see things from that, from that lens or that angle. But just because that person's black does not necessarily mean that they have the understandings um, or, or knowledge of anti-black racism itself. Um, and that, that's a specific skill set or a specific uh, understanding or ideology. And so that's the thing I think we need to be a little bit careful of. Um, in that belonging to a group does not necessarily mean that you have the understandings of that group. Uh, and then the last thing is that, the last thing I promise this is the last thing, is that the workplaces should not rely on uh, minorities or traditionally marginalized groups as the ones that need to lead this conversation in the workplace. And they can't expect them to be um, at the helm of these conversations every single time. Um, they need to, workplaces need to do this work on their own. Like I said, hire somebody else if you need to. Um, upskill, upskill your employee because it is exhausting being a person of color. And so if you're always being asked to, to represent the, the perspectives or the experiences of people of color uh, or, you know, an entire group, A, you can't do that. You'll never be able to represent an entire group. And B, it should never always be you. You should be able to choose when you want to get to participate in. We shouldn't expect marginalized communities to always be at the forefront of dealing with these types of issues. Yeah. Sometimes we just want to do our work. It's interesting because I think the first the first thing that comes to my mind in terms of what I wish, you know, I, I, I knew when I was younger, it's that sometimes when I, you know, walk into a room um or i provided an opinion i'm a very outspoken person um and from a young age i was put in a fairly high position of authority uh in terms of management and that didn't always rub off on people in the right ways and so it impacted how people perceived me um the relationships to me um and i internalized a lot of that and so I think this is more so for the people who are experiencing the, the the discrimination and the inequities, if you will, that it has actually nothing to do with you. Like that experience that you're going through, even if you are in senior leadership and you have, you know, entry level staff who are who are who are judging your 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 calls or judging your qualifications or your your decisions, that I think that that has no reflection necessarily on the quality of your idea, the quality of your work, but it has more so a reflection on the person's insecurities. It has a reflection on their conscious or unconscious bias. And it's important not to internalize that as a feeling on your part um, and that you need to continue with your perspective, with your knowledge, um, because you don't want to lose yourself or mold yourself to fit into this status quo to appease a group of people um, where your perspectives and your insights are, are good just as, as they are. 
If you'd like to find out more about Jessica Kitwara Green's work, the Elate Framework, or her consulting services, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Jessie Cat and on her website, jessiecat.com. She's happy to engage and chat with companies and people to help them better understand and develop strategies around these issues. If you'd like to hear more about innovation and specifically about the differences between diversity and inclusion, you can check out our episode 34 from last year, EDI, Diversity and Inclusion, Does It Mean What You Think?, with two consultants and podcasters in that area. Join us for upcoming episodes on the digital advertising hockey and Martin Sato's long and never dull online career, including a story about McLean's Magazine, the Chinese language edition, and another episode on Brianne and Dick's Thimbleberry Business, a business uniquely positioned at an intersection of Indigenous culture, beating art, connection, and upcycling. As always, thanks for listening. See you next time. This episode of Cross Pollination is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Whether someone is battling depression, fleeing domestic abuse, or worried about putting food on the table, it's times like these that inspire people to help others during a period of unprecedented needs. The Calgary Foundation is here to help through the generous support of donors. The foundation offers a wide range of funding opportunities for organizations who share a common goal of building a healthy, giving, caring, and resilient community. One where everyone thrives. If you're part of a registered charity looking for a grant, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about the Calgary Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and